podcast has been brought to you by the Rockless Women in Business Society at New Brunswick. Hello everyone and welcome back to Wednesdays with Whip. I'm Meredith and I will be your host for this episode. Let me briefly introduce myself. I'm currently a junior at Rockless Business School, majoring in Supply Chain Management and Bait. I'm one of the podcast management committees this year at WIP. Today, I'm super excited to have Professor Mary Evans as our guest this week. She's here to share her experience in the business world, personal finance, and the FIRE community. Hello, Professor Evans. Hello. Hello, Meredith. Thank you for inviting me to your um, podcast. Oh, thank you for taking time to speak with us today. I'd love to start with some quick introductions about yourself. Okay. Um, so uh, my name is Mary Evans. Um, I am a professor at Rutgers University. I've been teaching personal finance for the past 10 years. Um, I am also part of the FIRE movement, um, which is financial independence optional retire early movement. Most of us don't technically retire early. We just have an optional, you know, kind of get free card. If, if we wanted to retire from our normal jobs, um, I am also um, part of FINRA and um, FINRA arbitration. I also am associated with the associations of uh, certified financial um, specialist against financial crimes, and um, I essentially I, I research about people who are, you know, why certain policies keep individuals poor. What's not working? What's like keeping individuals um, from actually being able to succeed financially? And I teach my students how to get rich. <laughs> it's the exact opposite, you know. So. Uh, essentially, it's it's um, two very contrasting views of of finance. Can you share some of your experience in the business world and personal finance with us? My husband and I, we essentially hit FI, which is financial independence, pretty early on, um, and we did a lot of things along the way that made it a priority in our life to have financial independence and financial security. And uh, both of us came from places and families that didn't have any financial education at all. In fact, they weren't well off at all um, in any sense. I mean, his mom was a single mom raising three children um, with no support at all from his, par- from his father. And um, he had a lot of support from his grandparents, but they also weren't wealthy. They were just able to be there. And my parents are immigrants and I'm an immigrant as well. Um, so there was no education about money at all, mm-hmm. about how to kind of get your feet wet, how to succeed. The formula for a lot of immigrants is you have to go to college. You have to become a doctor or lawyer <laughs> or a business owner, right? Um, or um, or something like that. That's the the epitome of success. You have to have a new car. You have to have a big house. That's the formula that we've always been told that that success is, and it's not. And mm-hmm. um, 
And I learned along the way that, you know what, success and personal finance doesn't always come together. You can be successful, but not financially independent. Um, you can be financially independent, but not fall under the same category as success that most, most people in society um, associate with the typical successful individual. You know? So um, breaking out of that stereotype and that paradigm um, kind of causes us to shift into different views and perspectives. And also like it, it opens up our eyes too. Like we don't have to follow that same formula that our parents think is the right way or that our peers think is the right way. There's, there's a lot of different ways that we can get to success, to financial independence. Um, <clears throat> and those are important things to embrace, okay? The differences that we view things, there are perspectives. Um, it's very important and it changes us as an individual. Um, so doing things, what I would say like outside of the box and outside of the lines, uh, sometimes it, it has great results. <laughs> yeah, I can't agree more. I think these are the concepts that we don't hear often or usually learn from school. So that's definitely something that we should spend more time thinking about it and do something to change these mindsets. Next, I would like to hear more about your research in teaching people how to be rich and some reasons why people are poor. Okay, so um, so I teach personal finance. It's the, the, the actual course is actually called um, Finance for Personal and Professional Success. And it's offered through the Labor Studies Department through the School of Management and Labor Relations. So that's a mouthful um, to, to explain to people like, what do you teach? Well, actually it's finance and personal, you know, it's a long name for the topic, but in essence it's really personal finance. So it's financial literacy. Um, so financial literacy means that you are, you understand not just, um, what money is, but you understand how to utilize it effectively. And it's, and it's really about learning how to optimize what you currently have, and then also how to achieve the specific goals that you set yourself up for, um, mm -hmm. financial goals, um, because essentially what we wanna do is plan ahead to, um, to optimize like our finances, our budget, our taxes, our, uh, retirement planning, our insurance, you know, um, all of those things kind of come together and they pull together in our life. This is very much a, um, a real world um, topic that a lot of people don't have any idea about. So the, the student body is very diverse. Um, mm -hmm. We have students that are just coming out of high school and they're, some of them are, we've had a few that were homeschoolers. So they were on the younger side of, um, of the normal typical college students you know, and then we've had students that work, returning students coming back to school. So 25 years or older. My oldest student was like in their 80s. The mm. oldest I've ever had was 86 years old. And one, that specific student, I remember this one specific student, um, they had never learned about personal finance ever. At 86 years old, 
uh, their spouse did all of the finances. So they never had to learn, but they knew, they, they, they knew how to, you know, take care of the groceries and like the budget for certain things. They just didn't know anything else. They had no idea about, you know, investing or about savings or about uh, optimizing like, or, or anything about credit cards or credit rates or scores. Um, so they really had like no financial education and that's typical of most individuals. So the conversation has to happen somewhere, okay? And, and if you don't have it at home, you don't, maybe in, in certain cultures, people don't talk about money, it's rude. It's yeah. considered extremely rude. Like, why do you want to know? <laughs> it's none of your business. Like you, you get that a lot. So you get a lot of times where parents refuse to talk to their children about money. Um, children can't talk to their parents, maybe because, you know, parents are, feel uncomfortable about it or kids feel uncomfortable about it. Um, maybe your family have just never spoken about it. So, or you come from a family where it's just so strained financially that speaking about it or just pointing something out or, you know, um, discussing it really is a strain, right? And, and it puts everyone on eggshells and essentially it makes them very, very defensive, you know, stressed out. So um, personal finance um, has a lot of key parts, it's psychological as well as like uh, educational. And what I try to do in the classroom and, and in any place really when I'm trying to talk to someone is really to kind of pull it all together. And it's, it doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it's even, it doesn't happen like in one semester, you'd have to have repeated exposure over it, okay? So basically trying to teach people how to get rich because it's so hard for everyone to go past what they're dealing with, right? And what they know their entire life to, to have someone say to them like, I can tell you how to get rich, but it's not the lottery. <laughs> and, and it doesn't mean that you have to put all of your money in the bank and it's not yeah. just saving your money for the rest of your life and getting like that big job that pays, you know, a lot of money and becoming CEO of a company. That's not mm -hmm. going to get you rich. Um, so it's very hard for somebody to accept that, to believe me, right? Mm -hmm. When I say like, I, I can teach you to become rich. I can teach you what you need to know to do that. And it's very simple, mm -hmm. um, right? So, um, so some of the things that I research on why people are poor, there's lots of reasons why people are poor, okay? And there's, there's, there's actually like this taboo thing, it's called um, a poor mindset, like a mm -hmm. poverty mindset. So when you're poor, you, you tend to, um, when you have that poverty mindset, even if you're no longer poor, but you were, maybe your family was poor or your grandparents were poor, your parents were poor or you were poor in the past, you have, you know, it's very hard to get past something called poverty mindset. Mm -hmm. And the poverty mindset essentially says, um, I can't get rid of anything. So the only way that I associate with someone being rich because I'm poor, I don't have much. If I'm poor, that means that somebody who has a lot of things is rich so mm -hmm. if they have like the best car if they drive like the 
you know, the latest model or the most expensive car, if they have the biggest house or the, a mansion or something like that, you know, that they must be rich. And we, we view somebody as being rich if they have a lot of stuff. So psychologically, <clears throat> for somebody who, who doesn't have a lot of money, they're going to want to hold on to all of their things, even if they don't need it anymore. Right. So when they're no longer poor and now they have, you know, a little bit of money, they want to accumulate things. It's material. They want to, you know, buy more stuff and have things that they didn't have before. And um, and so you get kind of caught up. I see a lot of people who, you know, came from a poverty background mm -hmm. and they start accumulating a lot of things. So they become like of collectors of stuff of material mm. um you you they can hold on to things because maybe like one day somebody might need to use it <laughs> they don't have yeah. to buy it anymore um so um you know it, you kind of get stuck in that mindset and then also certain decisions are really hard if you came from that type of background um some decisions are really difficult because you know uh maybe you don't want to spend money even though it might be put to good use later on so for example i have a lot of students who might be coming from you know a um an, a background that has strained finances mm -hmm. right and so they might have like a poverty background and, and or their family had financial struggles and they might say like i I'm very uncomfortable with any type of risk at all, like mm -hmm. any type of risk. So I don't think I want to invest at all. Okay. Can't I just put all of my money in the bank and just mm -hmm. that's how I can accumulate, or maybe I can do something that just has no risk at all. And they don't understand like the risk versus reward. And so to them, it's like, that's too much risk. I, I can't, you know, if I have any money, uh, I can't put it at risk because then what What if it disappears? What if it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who are coming from like that poverty background, they're much more conservative as investors. Mm -hmm. So they tend to kind of, they, they tend to invest in things that kind of are more tangible, meaning like more um, material and more, um, more something that they can see. So mm -hmm. for example, they might, they might want to put it into like CDs or they might want to put it in treasuries, which gives awful, awful interest rates right now. Um, or they might just want to put it into the bank and let it sit there in the bank account. And that's how they think that the money, you know, is safe. So they just tend to go towards like safety, money that is not going to disappear, money that's accumulated. And so their biggest, the biggest way that they think that you're going to get out of poverty is you're going to get your education. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad thing to be educated, but you're going to, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer or, an, you know, or something else in the realm of, you know, maybe work in Wall Street or whatever. Um, but m mostly it's like your education is going to be the one that's going to make you rich because you're going to now earn, go graduate, and then earn money that will provide for you, right? And that mm -hmm. will give you some sort of financial stability. So, um, so 
we come from that type of mindset. My family definitely had that mindset. Um, as immigrants, and I, I was born in Cambodia, and we lived in a refugee camp, you know, until I was like around 10, before we went to the Bronx. Um, and I lived in the Bronx in New York for a very long time before I finally ended up in New Jersey by, um, by happenstance. But we had that mindset. We had that mindset, you know, in the refugee camp, you had nothing. Um, and then in the Bronx, it we were surrounded by people who were just like us, immigrants, um, or people who were poor. You you normally typically like were not rich. If you back when I lived in the Bronx, you were in in my neighborhood. You were not rich if you lived in my neighborhood in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, there's you know there's a lot more change happening, mm -hmm. and it wasn't like Manhattan where most people live <laughs> like people who were considered wealthier would live in Manhattan or in Brooklyn or in Queens, right? Uh, if you lived in the Bronx, it was kind of more of like, you lived in the Bronx. <laughs> you, did, you, you, didn't, you didn't come for money if you lived in the Bronx generally, you know? Um, so, uh, so that poverty mindset was very much there. Like you had to get your education in order to get out of poverty. If you didn't want to be poor, later on you had to go to college you had to you know get your education and that's the only way that you would be able to get out of poverty in that mindset okay mm -hmm. um and that changes when you leave there so for individuals who didn't grow up say in new york city or in the bronx or refugee camps or if they're not immigrants you know suppose they lived in suburbia um it, it's a bit different because the um the perspective is you don't have to go to college. You can go to trade school. You can learn a skill. Um, you can start your small business or your own business. You can start something called a side hustle and then you know, become an entrepreneur and create like your own business. Or you can go into to construction or rental properties. So there's, there's a bit more emphasis on autonomy and on like creating your own um, business or your own job. So so it changes going from a place where most people are poor and they have that mindset, like the only way you're going to be able to succeed is through college. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, actually, because as immigrants, that's, that's the mentality. But even as normal individuals, we feel the strain mm -hmm. of having to go through the motions of just college. Like that's the only way. It's point A to point B to point C. That's here's the formula. You go to college you become a doctor, you become a lawyer, um, and, or you go to business school, you become CEO, or you go to the school, you know, you go and become like a scientist, or you become a professor, or you become a whatever. So there's, there's more of like, they're looking for financial stability mm -hmm. in a job, right? Whereas when you leave that setting, um, and you, you, you're not, raised in that type of like financial insecurity, there's more of maybe a push to branch out on your own and find something that you like and become an entrepreneur and become a business individual. So as we talked about the poor mindset, I would like to know what did you do to pull yourself out of the poor mindset you had before? Okay, so um, what pulled me out of the poor mindset when I was um, when I was 16, I, I lived in New York City at the time, and I had a, a job, an internship that I had to apply for. 
uh, and not for any, anything, but you know, when you're living in New York City and you go to school in Manhattan, mm-hmm. everybody is struggling to succeed. Okay, mm-hmm. so you are surrounded by people all the time pushing and grinding and struggling to succeed and struggling to provide for their family or you know trying to be more successful in their career. So I applied for an internship um, and this internship was open to to students in high school mm-hmm. and in college. And it was a, an internship in, at Park Avenue Bank in New York City. So I applied and I actually got the job. So mm-hmm. at 16, I, I worked at the bank and the bank is a, a different world. In finance, there's a big umbrella and mm-hmm. banking is just one small little subsidiary of, of you know, financial, um, of the finance sector. So mm-hmm. there's a lot in there in the business. But when I was working at the bank, I was working with wealthy clients. So I started as an intern mm-hmm. um, and I was exposed to a lot of people who were older, who were working like full-time careers, had families who were, you know, sh- struggling or trying to succeed. And they were very good in what they did. Um, but I was also rubbing shoulders and networking mm-hmm. with a lot of people that were coming into the banks. Um, and I was learning, I was, first I was dealing with just files um, as an intern. They, they put you into the copy machine and you're doing files. The first, you know, the first time until they kind of, you kind of get comfortable and you expand on how, how far you want to go in, in that career. So I was learning about things that kind of came up. Um, some of the clients that the bank had at that time were extremely small um, clients and businesses, but now you see them everywhere. In fact, some of them are like, it could, I can't, I can't give you direct names, but they're, they could be like grocery stores or convenience stores that you see in every single corner <laughs> right now, or that you might get gassed from or famous celebrities, right? So mm-hmm. these were certain accounts that I was dealing with just, you know, a normal daily day to day basis. And then they started asking me to do more things like um, operations or general ledgers or, um, uh, different accounts or researching different sectors like they dealt with mortgages and they dealt with lending and they dealt mm-hmm. with uh, different like industries and they dealt with interest rates and um, and they dealt with savings rate and they dealt with like um, inputting like money that people were depositing and and you know um, and they dealt with currency so I was learning all of these things at the same time um, and then by the time I was 18, they bumped me from an intern to becoming a credit analyst for the bank. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, if you stay in New York and you continue to work for us and continue to work for this company, we will pay for your entire education for like all of your, you know, all of your, um, your college degree. So everything, they'll pay for everything in any college you want to go to in New York so long as you continue to work for us. And I was not cognizant. And this is where I guess ignorance comes in because nobody told me like, wait a minute, hold on, this is free. That means that I wouldn't have to take out a loan. That means that also 
the money that I would save, I can put towards something else, you know, where I should invest whatever else and I'm getting job security. Instead, I said at 18 years old and at 16 years old, oh no, no, I, I can't stay in New York. I'm going to become a nun. <laughs> And I'm going to go to a college that has a seminary and become a nun, <laughs> you know, and, and I won't be staying in New York. And so I gave my two week notice at 18. Um, and at that time, my parents were, were moving to New York, to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. But um, I said that, you know, when I graduate from my school, I will be leaving my job and I will be giving my two week notice. So, so essentially I left money on the table and out of ignorance, I made a very bad financial choice. Mm -hmm. okay. So again, that mindset, nobody told me like, Hey, wait a minute, just because no, 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 don't go to the school that's over there. Go to the school that's over here because they give you the most money, you mm -hmm. know, um, or go to go stay with this job, even though you have to stay in New York city, but they're going to give you the most value. So nobody told me that. There was nobody that mentored me or told me anything at all. They just assumed like I knew. Um, and so that was my mistake number one, okay? Now, when I get to two weeks before I was supposed to go to the, the school, I was supposed to go to become a nun. Um, my parents found out it was a co-ed school. And this comes back to this, you know, immigration mindset and also like culturally, like as a traditional and also as a, an immigrant in an Asian culture, when my parents found out back then that it was a co-ed school and I was going to be dorming and going away to a college that was co-ed, that meant that there were boys on campus, even mm -hmm. though I tried to explain to them that the dorming is separate. There's a girl's dorm and there's a boy's dorm. My parents did not accept that because for them as immigrants, they were fearful. Mm -hmm. Oh no, there's boys on campus. You can't go there. <laughs> So they didn't sign for me, even though I had a full ride to that college. So mm -hmm. I ended up staying in New Jersey. Okay. But so I got a job and I said, I can't, if I stay in New Jersey, I cannot do nothing. So I ended up getting a job at, um, at a big, um, I guess, coffee house or realtor. And, um, and they gave me a job as their location scout. Um, so I would kind of like go in there and do some real estate deals and look at the analysis and look at the data and, and things like that um, and see if it's marketable to open a, a, a shop there or to mm -hmm. open another branch there. And it was. So I did that in New York and I did it in New Jersey. In the same time, I enrolled in some community college courses, which I never went to mm -hmm. um, because I was working like 120 hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, and then two weeks into that college, uh, you know, that, that year that I was supposed to start college um, and into my job at this realtor place, 9-11 um, happened. So 9-11 was the terrorist attack on the World Trade Centers. And it mm -hmm. happened, both of my parents worked in New York City. So because they worked in New York City, my dad was actually two blocks away from the World Trade Center, his job was there, and um, his building um, completely was destroyed. Um, both my parents lost their job. They had just bought their first house ever, their mm -hmm. first you know, property ever, their dream home in New Jersey. And you know, 
uh, as first generation anything that's the biggest dream that they have that uh, this mm -hmm. big American dream is to have your own home right to be a homeowner mm -hmm. um so they lost their jobs and there was a panic and so I took over their mortgage I ended up taking over all of the bills and mortgage and I was working again at that place um this big um corporation realtor real um retail corporation that paid me a lot of money doing what I was doing and so I I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked and paid off their mortgage um in the meantime I met my husband in this place he walks in at the, around the same time he walks in and I meet my husband um and you know the rest is history of course we ended up uh figuring out very early on after about a year and a half of you know knowing each other that we are meant to be we're going to get married and we did <laughs> so we got married um and immediately we said you know you're the one who finished college and you have a great career that requires you to put in a lot of uh networking and a lot of hours in and grow your career so he went to work and I went to school and work and then we said you know because one of us has a flexible schedule we should start having a family now um, because we don't want anybody else raising our children. We didn't want to put them in daycare. We um, wanted to be like present parents and mm -hmm. we wanted, we knew it was going to be tough, but we were young enough mm -hmm. and very optimistic <laughs> enough to say like, we can do it. <laughs> right. And we did, and it was very hard, um, but we were able to do that. And, uh, and, and then I went back to college and I finished my education um, while I was having the children. And as my husband got more successful, it was it enabled me to pull back from work, working. And then by the time I was um, 26, I was taking grad classes at uh, SMLR, doing labor studies. And every time I was learning something, because it's, it's all about workers, you're le learning about organization, you're learning about workers' rights, you're learning about how work operates. And, and it was very real for me, okay? Um, understanding like that there are ways that corporations were winning. And so the worker was not winning. And so I sat there through a lot of these classes and every time I had an idea, I had a little notebook and I would write it down and I would say, you know what, in order for me to not get on that hamster wheel, for me to succeed, mm -hmm. for the corporation to not win, or for me to, to be able to have some of these key items, being able to be with my family was priority number one, being able to have financial independence, priority number two, being able to provide for my, my family without having to worry about money and to eventually take care of my parents and to have passive income. These are some things that I needed to do. Um, so I came up with these ideas. The first idea I had was um, an online uh, deal site. <laughs> so back then, you know, online deal sites were very far and few in between. So you would just basically buy a domain and you would host your online deal site with your website and you would just find these deals and then you pop them in there. So I created an online deal site and um, and it did pretty well. And then somebody offered to buy my online deal sites. So I sold it. <laughs> And I made money off of it. So that was first thing. The next thing is that my husband and I bought our first property very early on. Uh, I think I was 
20 and he was, you know, not much older. Um, mm -hmm. And we bought our first property. And the reason we bought our first property was um, financially, personally, under our own name, instead of like, I was paying off my parents' mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I, we bought our first property. And the reason, the way we were able to save for the down payment was we didn't have a big wedding. Mm -hmm. Our wedding cost us $500. Mm -hmm. And that included the, the wedding dress, included the tuxedo, included all the flowers and the bouquet. It included the license that you needed to get and, you know, to pay for whoever was going to marry you off. Um, and it included the reception. We had only 10 people, very close family members. It was not even all our family. It was not all of our friends. We only had very close individuals that were there. So 10 people maximum. And the reception was during a lunchtime reception, like earlier in the day. So it wasn't as expensive when you do dinners it's much more expensive than if you do lunch um and we said to the people that were there you can order whatever you want open bar open menu everything you know we'll cover it and it just happened that it cost us less than five hundred dollars <laughs> now the money we had originally saved to get married we used for a down payment of our first property we lived in that property um for almost five years and then when we went to sell, it was at the height of the housing market, right? Mm -hmm. We bought it, we bought that property at a very, very low price. We fixed it up. We lived in it. Um, we did a lot of renovations that were our own. We were pretty handy. Um, and then we sold it a few years later and made $500,000 profit because that's wow. on your first property. You know, if you're married, you can keep up to $500,000 worth of the profit mm -hmm. above what you bought your house for above any debts that you have on the house so you, so if you bought your house for like say 250,000 and you sold it for 750,000 as a couple you can keep up to $500,000 tax free on the prop, on the profit of your house the revenue of your mm -hmm. house so we were able to do that um on the revenue of our house and what i did was i took the profit from there and then i put it into and at that point, it was um, when we sold our property, we already had a, a second property, which we bought from a relative um, who was going into like assisted living. But we bought it at fair market value. However, I, you know, so we bought it from our relative, um, the second property. We took the money from the first property after we sold it. And I took that money and I um, invested it into properties commercial properties that were on main street at that time and and at this point in time the market had dipped main street is suffering you know you have the housing market crashing and mm -hmm. you have the bank crisis so you have a lot of people who are kind of like panicking and so you know um lots of stores were shutting down on in key strategic areas of main street so my background is again when i was working at that real retail uh, company doing like location scouting. My my key thing was to analyze the location and the profitability of that location and how much revenue we could possibly get and how much you know drive and people would go in there. So when I put money into those commercial properties, at that time the market was very low. 
mm-hmm. because people were panicking and and a lot of stores were closing. So it was a it was actually most people were fleeing that main street uh, commercial property investment type of thing, and they couldn't get people to fill in the the shops. But I was putting money into it, and I and I kept putting money. I put all of the the five hundred thousand dollars in there, mm-hmm. and then the following year. I sold it because it doubled because now mm-hmm. it, the market bounced back up and we have a huge demand for these same places. So I was able to resell it, you know, for more than double the profit and take that money, pay the capital gains on it and then continue to reinvest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first 500 and then my first one, 1. 1.5 million, 2 million, um, and then I kept reinvesting and then spreading it out. So then I went into rental properties. I went into investing um, and I went into like a lot of different things. I, became, I created franchise models um, and a franchise is when people pay you to use your model and your ideas in your marketing. So uh, some, some examples of franchises, like say uh, 7-Eleven is a franchise, you know, mm-hmm. certain, certain, um, products I, I guess or certain services like tut- some tutoring services are franchisees or something like that so you might have like franchising idea you might have ideas that people will pay to use but you you brand it you copy it you, you know all of that is your marketing all of that is your your work what they're paying for is to be able to use that um, and so I created three separate franchises and people pay me for these business models in order to use, um, which created passive income. Mm -hmm. Um, And then anytime I would get passive income, I would again, reinvest it back into more businesses. So it can, it continued to grow. And then eventually, um, and I should have done this a lot sooner was to take some, take the money and actually put it into investing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and put it into tax deferred and tax preferential treatment accounts. Like, a Roth IRA and a, you know, and creating a 401k and, you know, putting it into various different places that gave it tax preferential treatment. Because when you have businesses, all of that is money, but it's taxable. So if you put it into accounts that are tax preferential treatment from the IRS, you can actually save on taxes later on. So a Roth, if you put money into a Roth, you pay the taxes already you put the money in there, anything that you invest, it grows in terms of, of uh, compounding interest. It's tax-free. And then when you go to take it out later on, however many years, company interest included, it's tax-free. So, so tax planning was something I, I learned later on, but learning to be an entrepreneur was something I had to do because I had all of these goals and I had to figure out how do I achieve that, but still keep within my priority, okay? And still keep whatever was important to me, which was my, the value of my family, the being able to, to be there for my children, um, being able to, you know, be the parent that it's available. I don't want to miss out on, on birthdays or anniversaries or Christmas or Thanksgiving. I want to be able to be there with my family. How do I do that? And I realized, you know what? I really don't want to make other people money. <laughs> I want to make myself money. I don't mm-hmm. want to work 
somebody else and make them money and mm-hmm. have them have my intellectual property or my ideas. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I realized like pretty early on, like I, I had to be the boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so now, I mean, my typical day, what it looks like is that I wake up, I get my children ready for school, they go on the bus, you know, and then I, I either walk around the block or do some sort of meditation or, or exercise, get, now I'm getting older, I have to take care of my body as well as my mind. Um, and, and then I either have some meetings from my house. You know, when I have time with uh, my, my property managers or my um, my directors or my, you know, my, my direct reports for the businesses that I have, I don't check, I don't deal directly with my business anymore. I've gotten to the point where I can outsource that. Somebody else can be just as good as me, if not better, and they can put in the work and the hours and I can be at home. My children don't see me leave the house. They leave, I'm home. They come home from school off the bus, I am home. You know, they need me to pick them up early, or I need to go to, you know, a parent teacher meeting or, you know, an after school event or something or another for my kids. I'm available, I'm there. And my husband, if he travels, then I'm the parent home. So we, we never like neglect our. our priorities which is our children and that allowed me to take care of our grandparents across the street during the pandemic as well because we didn't need to be outside of the house we didn't need to to you know leave our kids or our our relatives um and it 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 kept in line with the the main priority of in my um in my life which is family Now we are going to switch topic and discuss the FIRE movement. I would like to know how did you decide the time for your retirement? Or let me rephrase it. How did you calculate your FIRE number? So in FIRE or in financial independence, we have a a number that we have to reach to be considered financially independent. So the way you would want to look at it is this. How much money do you think you need to live comfortably every year? So you kind of, if you were to give yourself a salary, how much money or income do you think you need to be satisfied? Okay. So once you have that amount in mind, what I, what I, we essentially do is we figure out the number that you would need as a lump sum. Okay. So this is all based on something called the 4% rule and it's mm-hmm. the 4% withdrawal rule. And what it says is that if you have um, investments, right, and you draw 4% from 4% or less from that investment, it gives you enough to be able to live off and to support your lifestyle and whatever else you need, right, without you having to deplete your investments or deplete your income or deplete your savings. So um, one example I would give you is like my friend Richard Klein, is 79 years old, but he's had like five bouts of cancer and three open heart surgeries. And he says, well, Mary, I need $2 million right now in order for me to be considered to, to stop working and to be set for life. So at, at $2 million times 4%, he would have, he would end up with $80,000 every year. Okay. So if you withdrew $2 million, you know, 
4% from $2 million of his investments. And he was getting like 8% investment every year, which you can get in the S&P 500. Um, he would be able to live off of $80,000 every year. And that's mm-hmm. as a single guy with no family, no nothing. He's old. Um, he And he can go out and do whatever he wants and travel or eat out. $80,000 is enough money for him. So mm-hmm. that's, that's his fine number is 2 million. For me, I had four children, a spouse, and grandparents, my grandparents-in-law across the street, and three sets of parents, because my husband has two sets that are divorced, you know, and remarried, and I have one set myself. My financial independence number was a lot higher, because I had to account for the fact that if something were to happen to me, will they be okay? Will my children be able to go to college? You know, will they be able to to have medical coverage and um, will they be able to have any, anything that they need in order for them to be okay if I was no longer there? So my financial independence number was a bit higher. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't 2 million, <laughs> it was higher. And, um, and when I reached that financial independence number, that's when I retired at the age of 27. Yeah. I was able to get that number at 27 years old. Um, and at that point, I wasn't working a nine to five job anyway. <laughs> I quit my job, my, my, you know, my job that was uh, paying me a paycheck and all of my passive incomes and my businesses were enough to be able to provide for me um, and my children and my, you know, my family. So I, I hit a five, I hit financial independence at 27. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just want to give you a little tidbit here. I want you to think about this. So when I say that, you know, like it's the 4% rule, but I also want you to think about the fact that at $5 million, the 4% rule is now perpetual. So at $5 million times, you know, 4%, you can essentially withdraw like $150,000 to $200,000 perpetually. And at 5 million at 8%, your money is always going to be replaced based on your investment. So you will never outspend your, 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 your lump sum 5 million. It will always end up working to with compounding interest to replace the amount that you pull out every year, okay? So you will never have to, uh, the investment will be perpetual. It will be forever. Mm-hmm. Can essentially give yourself a forever salary once you have five million. That's mm-hmm. not my fine number. My fine number was higher, but for most individuals, you know, five million is perpetual. If you're under one hundred and fifty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars per year, you can perpetually give yourself a salary of that amount mm-hmm. without ever dipping into that five million itself, because the investment mm-hmm. is continually re- replenishing. Mm-hmm. Sounds like perpetual. Can you provide us with some suggestions about how college students can start planning for their personal finance or if they also want to use FI as their um, lifestyle? Okay, so um, I will say that FI is not just a lifestyle. It's something, it's not, I would say that for any generation, you should strive for five. So five does not have to be five million. It does not have to be 10 million. Some people can get to five, which we call lean five, 
at mm-hmm. 600,000 because they just don't spend a lot of money and their lifestyle is very, very minimal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they could be happy at, you know, $600,000 as a lump sum and they could be lean fi because they're very frugal. Maybe they don't drive, they just ride their bikes and they, they walk or they take mass transportation and they don't live a big lifestyle and they have a small apartment or a small house and they don't have children and they don't have, you know, like essentially you can be fi at any point in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so long as you reach that area where you are financially able to replace your income, your earned income with your investments or something passive. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can be fi at any point. You do not have to be wealthy, crazy wealthy to be fi. Um, and you can start, and my biggest mistake as a, as, um, a financial person, and I learned this like later on after having kids, is that I should have started at 16 investing. In fact, I should have started the minute I thought about investing. So mm-hmm. the earlier you start investing in yourself and, and putting money away, like if you, if you can afford $100, put $100 into investments. Mm-hmm. And you can open like a low cost brokerage, like Vanguard Fidelity HR Schwab, right? And I think Sophie has one too and some other places, but you need to invest. The earlier you invest, the more your money compounds and it works for you. For every $100 that you have right now at a, a, a rate of 20% interest, it's equivalent to $11,000. So every $100 that you invest today, if you had 50 years, it's equivalent to to $11,000. Okay, so can you imagine if you had $100,000 invested? Okay, or if you had $10,000 invested? Um, so that's 50 years. If you started at the age of like five, 50 years is not that bad, it's 55 years old. If you started at the age of 15, 50 years is at age 65. If you started at the age of 20, 50 years is 70. But, you know, the earlier you start, the more you have compounding interest, the more mm-hmm. your money doubles, and the richer you become without doing anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of these side hustles, all of these businesses, all of these jobs, um, uh, all of these franchises, all of these things, they make me money. And it's true, you know, but actually, after I started putting money into investments, my investments far outseeded, um, exceeded my entrepreneurship and my businesses okay so my investments on average uh I can get like anywhere between like 20 this year it's been a crazy year it's been 29 plus percent Mm -hmm. some of some of my individual like picks my individual investments gave me like more than 200 percent okay but essentially like 29 plus percentage okay Whereas my individual investments, so in real estate, if you were renting a property, the max, um, the max return annual return you would probably get is about 7%. If that between sometimes in some years, it's between like um, five to 7% in real estate. So if you have rental properties and it's giving passive income. Okay. So it could be like, not much. It's about a steady moderate in between about 7% on average. Now, if you're talking about your own business, it fluctuates up and down. Okay. Some years you might get great. Some, some years you might not. And then um, if you have other things that are giving you income, it's all based on the economy and how well it does. Now, when you're investing, 
your money is diversified in, in all different companies and all different you know spans. And so you have a higher chance that your money is going to continue at a very aggressive rate. And being aggressive is anything above 12%, okay? And that's pretty, like, if you put it into the S&P 500, you're going to get around 8% or higher. Some years it's higher, right? Um, if you put it into very aggressive, like, mega caps or, uh, or tech companies, you know, they are probably going to give you, depending on how it's doing, like, a, a huge return, okay? So my money, if I were to start younger, and my advice mm -hmm. for you is, if I were to have started it younger with the amount of money I, I earned over at 16 and I just, instead of spending it on, you know, useless crap, like shoes, <laughs> eating out and, uh, you know, what did I spend on at 16 years old? I, I had a pair of destroyer boots, which were like big, you know, platform shoes that went all the way up to your, your knees that had buckled. Mm -hmm. Um, and I paid $300 for that back when I was 16 uh, in Manhattan Mall. If I, instead of buying that and I took that $300 and invested it, that $300 would have been more than $25,000 right now. Okay. They would have been more than $25,000. So if I can give you one piece of advice, take the money whatever amount you can. And if you can invest, do it. Um, any little amount that you invest now is exponential as you get, you know, as you put them in there and it, it gains traction in terms of interest because interest isn't just one time. It is, it, it is interest the first year and then interest the first year is added to the interest the second year plus interest. And it keeps going again and again and again and again so that it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, just like a snowball, just like a mm -hmm. snowflake starts off very small. That $50 that you might have saved one month becomes this big giant snowball, you know, or a big igloo, or, you know, it's enough to cover the field. I mean, you start small, but it becomes very big. So my mistake was not starting early enough. And it's always that same, it's everybody's mistake is not starting early enough. So if I started early enough, I don't think I would have had to work as hard <laughs> to get to Phi because I would have probably gotten to Phi without doing all of that work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So start early. Um, start small if you can, if, if that's where you are. And whatever the amount is that you start off with, that is fine. Okay. <laughs> but you need to start small and you need to really get... Um, get a get a control over your budget um as an individual um i ate out a lot when i was uh, a teenager and I, I had moved out of my house when i was 16 uh, because in new york city you you can do that and there's a lot of people that do um and a lot of my time was spent eating out a lot um so if if i could change things it's i shouldn't have bought all that stuff that i didn't need back then and I shouldn't have ate out so much because I should have learned how to cook because it would have saved me a lot of money and I should have invested much earlier much much earlier the other things like getting married young and having kids um young and immediately I don't regret that at all in fact that was the best thing for me because now at my age my friends 
are just starting to start families and get married and have kids and, you know, do that whole life. And I am almost done. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is something that uh, is very, very difficult in the beginning. You put in the work in the beginning, you put in all that struggle in the beginning because you have the energy to do that and you have the time. If you put money in right now and the market is horrible, okay, it doesn't matter because even if the market is horrible right now, you have 50 years where the market's going to be great, (laughs) where it will get back up and it will go back up and it will be great, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's all a number of averages. So it might be horrible this year, but next year it could be good and the following year could be good and the next year it might be bad and the years after that it might be good. So it'll go all up and down, but the average that you'll get is at, if you're aggressive, at least 12, 13, 14, 15%, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and, and over 10 years, that's two times your, your money just doubled twice. Whatever you started with, it doubled twice and it's going on three times, okay? At, at 20 years, you've got four doubling periods, meaning like if you had $100, the $100 becomes 200, the 200 becomes 400, the 400 becomes 800, the 800 becomes 1,600. The 1,600 becomes 3,200 within that same time span, okay? So that $100 doesn't stay 100. It's now that much bigger. So start early, start off within no matter how small, right? And figure out what you want in life. If you want children, plan for them now because they're expensive, okay? They're expensive uh, to pay for, but they're expensive in time. Your time is your most valuable asset and you have an abundance of it right now. So you need to opportunize, you need to capitalize on that right now. Um, and you might think like, oh, you know, having kids is a long way off or, or, you know, getting married is a long way off or retirement is a long way off. I'll never retire. That's not true. You might be forced to retire at 50. You might have health complications that come up. You might be forced to take time to take care of your children or your parents or whoever. You don't know, but having financial independence, that's priceless right there because you have that security of saying like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> This workplace is toxic. I am working like 50 hours, you know, 60 hours, 80 hours every week, and I cannot get off and I'm beholden to my job and it's eating at me. And I just want to be home and, you know, to be to rested and to take care of my children. I, want to, I need to take care of my body. I need to take care of my mind. I need time off. I need to do other things. And you can't because you're living from paycheck to paycheck. Okay. So when you break that cycle, you're no longer dependent on that check. You've got other sources of income that replaces that completely. Mm -hmm. And that's what financial independence really is. You're free with your time, which is your most valuable asset. Yeah, I agree. These are all awesome advice for our listeners. I would like to thank Professor Evans again for being here on this episode. I had a wonderful time with you. It was so amazing to hear about your experience, and we will definitely keep this advice in mind. Thank you very much, Meredith, for having me on. Um, And uh, 
And please let me know if you have any questions. My email is mary.evans at ruckers.edu. And, uh, you know, hopefully I will see future students, um, you know, or entrepreneurs from this web, from this webcast um, in my class. And let me know if you have any questions. Uh, feel free to email. Thank you very much. Thank you. A big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Join us at the next episode of Wednesdays with Web.